Well, good afternoon and welcome to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. I'm program host Kip Allen. Let's Talk is a program for the Christian layman, the Lutheran who, like me, believes but has some questions. In short, the program's designed for someone just like me. There is a lot I don't understand. It doesn't have to be soul-shaking. It might just be something that's been on my mind for a while. But rather than getting into a deep theological discussion, I find that sometimes a casual front porch-style talk with a pastor is often the best way to understanding. And that's what this program's all about. Today's guest is Dr. Joel Bierman, professor of systematic theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Now, I have my questions. I'm sure you have yours. You can send your questions by email at any time at letstalk at kfuo.org or call in during the program. If you're in the St. Louis area, the number is area code 314-821-0850 or toll-free anywhere in North America at 1-800-730-2727. Dr. Bierman, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, I understand that you teach doctrinal theology and you have a special interest and emphasis centered on ethics and the correct role of law in, in the life of the believer. Is that correct, sir? That's quite accurate, yes. Well, the main reason, sir, why I wanted you particularly on this program is there has been something that's really been on my mind, and especially with the news lately, and it's pretty. it, it goes into morality and ethics, and that is violence. Is the Christian ever justified in violence? And if so, under what conditions? I'm thinking, you know, we saw this horrible situation where students were gunned down, and there was another case in a church in Florida where uh, a guy went in and started shooting up uh, parishioners, and, and a person at home actually helped to stop him, actually uh, grabbed a gun and went in and helped to stop him. What is the ethics? When is the Lutheran justified in using violence, even deadly violence? Well, those are good questions, and there's a lot of material around them, underneath them, that kind of help to inform how to answer that neatly. And to um, sort it out takes a little bit of thought, and you got to kind of put a, piece, a few pieces together to kind of line it all up. On the face of it, as Christians, we're called to follow Christ. And it's pretty explicit. Um, Jesus makes it in the Sermon on the Mount that that means we follow in the way that he has gone, which, as Matthew 5 would tell us, means to turn the other cheek, which means not to um, demand our rights, not to um, you know insist that we have the right to refuse to obey you know what we consider something not right. If someone makes you go one mile, you go with them two miles. If someone wants your tunic, you give them your cloak as well. We have all that pretty clearly laid out. So the sense of nonviolence has always been pretty implicit in the Christian faith. And the idea that Christians don't take up violent arms and that Christ um, went willingly to Calvary. And as we follow Christ, we do the same thing. That, that tradition, and kind of a, frankly, a strong pacifist tradition, has a long, long heritage in the Christian church, especially in the early church. Now, that needs to be countered with or balanced with, and here's where the key would come in, with the Christian responsibility also to care for the neighbor and to look out for the neighbor. And so we are, we are charged to... Um, do good for our neighbor, to protect him, to, you know, even as Luther would say, to help advance his property and business, to speak well of him. We're supposed to look out for our neighbor. And so the Christian has this obligation to care for the neighbor. The Christian church has also then developed very early on uh, the understanding that the service of neighbor can be done for the neighbor, even what that means um, stepping into 
prevent them being harmed. So in other words, violence to stop a harmful perpetrator of evil is appropriate when it's done for the sake of the neighbor. This takes on another aspect, too, when you start thinking about the whole um, two realms aspect of what's sometimes called the doctrine of the two kingdoms, where God works in the church and through his spiritual realm in one way, and he works through the government and through his temporal realm in another way, and that also certainly plays into this. And as Christians are fulfilling their responsibilities according to those areas or those realms, it, it becomes relevant as we sort these things out. Well, I think Luther himself actually addressed the issue, uh, for example, saying that the, the soldier was, that's a vocation, and it's a God-given vocation. And uh, he also talked about obedience to the government. And I think also the uh, the uh, Augsburg Confession and the uh, the Concordia, uh, the, um, I'm sorry, sir, I'm having <laughs> late in the exactly afternoon. Yeah. Where they the, the uh, where they specifically address the idea of service to the emperor is not and is not in violation of the Christian belief. Right. And how do we go from that point? Uh, right. I know well, that's, that's 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 drilling in more on the two realms. So let's pick that up, and that's kind of the starting place. So what we have clearly taught in Scripture and places like Romans chapter thirteen and First Peter chapter two is that the Christian should not have a dismissive or negative attitude towards the state or to the government. Um, God has established the government. The government is there to uphold his justice, his, his law, to um, reward those who do well and to punish those who do evil. And Paul even uses the language of the sword, which in ancient Rome meant capital punishment. So the government has the right of the sword, has the responsibility of the sword to punish evildoers and to protect citizens. So when a government goes to war against an, uh, uh, someone who's invaded the country, this is entirely right and appropriate. When a police force uses deadly force against a criminal who is hurting people, this is exactly right. So can a Christian then participate in the government? And the answer of Luther is quite clear, absolutely, because the Christian lives in both realities. He lives before God as a believer, trusting, receiving by grace and faith all of God's gifts. And in that realm, he claims no rights. He insists not on his own way at all, but he simply receives what God gives. And then in the temporal realm, sometimes called God's left hand, he can serve his neighbor in many different kinds of vocations, whether as a doctor or as a um, secretary or a teacher or even as a soldier or a policeman, that these are appropriate vocations, and that's the right word to use, as he's serving his neighbor, using the gifts he's given in the service of the neighbor. And so can a soldier be a Christian? Yes. And can a Christian serve as a policeman? Yes. And you're quite right. Luther addressed this specifically in several essays, um, one called Temporal Authority from 1523, and then when you mentioned can, can Soldiers to Be Saved from 1526, and then you have the Augsburg Confession itself in Article 16, making it quite explicit that the temporal realm or the realm of the world is not evil, is not opposed to God. Now, just to clarify this a little bit more, this is not what all Christians might believe. There is a pretty strong segment of Christianity in the kind of Anabaptist tradition, so like the Amish or the Mennonites, and it shows up in many other religion denominations as well, that you know, a Christian needs to be consistent. He can never take up violent um, means at all. So that, that means that a soldier is ruled out by on principle. And this would be the distinction that we would have as Lutherans to say, no, Scripture's clear that the sample realm is not inherently evil. A Christian can participate 
let's look at history. Um, First and Second World Wars, where American Lutherans fought German Lutherans on opposite sides. How do we reconcile that? That's not a cool thing, but it's one of the realities. This, this is where things get complicated because so the government calls me to serve in the war and the soldier determines that this is a war for a just cause and so he does this. I think we can make the case that American boys living in the U.S. who were called to serve in the Second World War were answering the call to serve in a just war to stop oppression. To argue that the Third Reich was fighting a just war is a lot harder, frankly, especially from our perspective. Probably for the young guys living at the time, it made it a little more complicated. And if you were living in Germany in the 30s, everything was pretty complicated. But in hindsight, we would say, no, there was an injustice there. It was not in line with God's law at all. These were wars of acquisition. These were wars of conquest being waged by the Axis powers. That's why we were resisting it. And so then you can see the unfortunate thing where you can have somebody who is misinformed or is being misled by his leaders into a into an unjust war, and that certainly creates problems. Well, I guess that's the point. Uh, what what constitutes a just or an unjust war? As you pointed out, there really wasn't any question with the Second World War. Uh, I think perhaps with the First World War, the argument being that uh, what Germany, uh, Imperial Germany, was doing was an actual war of aggression. They weren't defending their homeland, per se. Right. And uh, that may have been... The key is that the, the the ministers at that time should have looked at this and said, "Is this right? Is this uh, just?" Right, right. The, the just war theory has a long, long history as well, um, and that's another whole animal. But it's, it's fascinating because there are clear parameters and guidelines to help those in responsible positions in the government to sort these things out. And yeah, you can make a case that the, the First World War, also the U.S. involvement in it fit the criteria for a just war. You can make that case. Uh, things get complicated when you start looking at all the requirements of just war, which not only are directions before you start the war, but also rules about how you conduct the war. And that's where things start to be a little more complicated in some of our U.S. history, because some of the rules there are like you never target civilians, and your response to those be proportionate to the um, threat being aimed at you. And that's where you get into difficulties with some of the... Um, intentional bombing of civilian targets and things like that. It gets a little bit dicier to try to defend it. But that's part of our history. Yeah. It's, a, it's a rough decision to make. Uh, just it look, is. Well, for example, look at the um, uh, the bombing campaigns of World War II. Uh, the U.S. used uh, what was called pinpoint bombing, which is really not very pinpoint. But the thing was, is we never intentionally hit civilian targets. Now, the RAF did. Our British yeah. allies intentionally went after civilian areas. Yeah, and that's... yeah. The, 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 some of the daylight raids late in the war, um, Dresden, you know, being bombed with incendiary bombs. Things get it's a little harder to defend. And then when you have questions like even the use of the um, the atomic bomb in Japan, that becomes even more difficult, you know, because you're clearly targeting civilians. So it's, it's harder to um, make a case. But it, it, like I said, you said it does get complicated. But on the merits of just war, it, it's harder to defend it. What question should the Lutheran ask when confronted with a situation that might possibly lead to violence? He needs to ask the question, I think, first of all, is, is this my, my office? Is this my, my calling from God? Do I have this responsibility? Uh, it's not appropriate for a, a Christian or any a Christian of any sort, Lutheran or not, to simply assert his own desire. I want to do this, so I'm going to do this. He needs to make, he needs to make sure he has the office. 
So a father protecting his children. Yes, he has the office of father. He's protecting his children. That's appropriate. A soldier protecting somebody. That's appropriate. He has the office of soldier. A policeman has the office of policeman. That's appropriate. That's his vocation. But we don't have the office, for example, of rebel to overthrow a government. Not acceptable. That's a violence wouldn't be appropriate. We don't have, uh, Luther would argue even, the right to stop the criminal from taking my stuff because it's not my stuff anyway and I should just let it go. And that's the attitude he has. We don't demand our rights. However, I can intervene to stop the criminal from taking somebody else's stuff, which starts to sound kind of funny, but it's actually quite consistent with Lutheran teaching because we don't live for ourselves. We live for the other. When it comes to benefiting myself, I don't matter. When it comes to protecting the neighbor, the neighbor is the is the goal and the object. Where this gets interesting, of course, is I could argue that, all right, so the guy wants to rob me, fine, I'll let him have my stuff. But if he gets my stuff, I'm gonna it's gonna hurt my family. Or if he wants to kill me, that's gonna hurt my family because now they don't have the what their father protect them or provide for them. So for the sake of my family, I need to defend myself. You can make that case as well. This is where things start to get a little more complicated. On the face of it, Luther would say it's pretty simple. We should do what Christ did and follow Christ as the Christian. And that means to turn the other cheek, not demand our rights, not stand up for ourselves, not insist that we have a right to our life. We frankly don't. Not insist that we have a right to our stuff. We don't. These are all just gifts to us from God. And yet for the sake of the neighbor, we can intervene and we can um, even use violence to defend the neighbor. Wow. We had here at the IC just recently. We had uh, an active shooting, an active shooting seminar. You know, and the local yeah. police came in and instructed us on how we should react and what we should do. The whole idea is run, hide, fight. Those are your your options. Okay. I I asked a question of him, and during the Q and A's period, and I said, "What about the use of deadly force?" And he looked at me and said, "Are you willing to kill?" And I had to think about that. Yeah. And I, in my own conscience, I would have to say, certainly I would for my family. For myself, yeah. To protect my property, probably. And maybe that's the wrong way for a Lutheran to look at it. And I'd like to get your take on that. Yeah, I, I think I'd push back a little bit on that. I think uh, most of us have been pretty in, in influenced by our American gestalt and our American way of thinking about things. Uh, I suspect that a lot of our assumptions about what's right and what's our, our, what we should do maybe is more influenced by American thought than by Christian thought. I've come up pretty strongly in challenging this notion of, of rights. The, the American way of life is founded on this notion of rights, that we have these inherent rights. But if you look hard in Scripture, you're going to find a tough time defending the idea of rights. What you get in Scripture is the sense of, of privileges and responsibilities and of gifts from God. So my life is a gift from God. The things I have are a gift from God, and I have the privilege to live as his child in this country. Now, the country extends to me certain rights. That's true. But these are also just things that the country has established, and those can be taken away. and doesn't change my responsibility to listen to the government or to be obedient. So I would contend that rather than thinking in terms of my right to defend myself or my right to keep my stuff from somebody stealing it, I should have the attitude of, I, I don't hold anything tightly. I'm I'm a creature dependent upon God for everything, simply receiving what he gives. And so I'm not going to stand up for my right. Now, to defend another, yeah, I can take 
action to defend another, even deadly force in the defense of another. This is where it gets really difficult is where, you know, a lay person actually intervening, he doesn't have the office of a, of a soldier or the office of a policeman, but he uses deadly force to stop some kind of terrible action. We could say that's just and that's justified, but probably for the individual involved in that, it gets pretty hard, and it should be kind of hard. It should be hard for him to sort out, what do I do here? Am I ready to take a life? This is a serious thing, taking a life. Do I have this responsibility to do that? What need, do I need to do that? And that's the kind of thing he should be thinking about and not just presuming on, yes, of course, it's my right to defend myself. Well, wait a minute. With this whole rights talk is kind of a funny thing coming from a Christian. Rather, we should be thinking about what has God called me to do? What is my task as a representative of Christ? What does it mean to follow in the way of Christ? And it puts us in kind of a different light and different spot than we are used to, I think. If we talk about our life and possessions, what have you, as being gifts from God, do we mm -hmm. have an obligation to protect those gifts? Sure, sure. Yeah, we do. And I would say that's why we take care of our homes. That's why we do a nice job keeping our, our yards looking nice and why we do lock our houses. We don't tempt people. So we don't let stuff be, you know, squandered or, or taken away. And yet, does that mean that when the burglar comes that I should use deadly force to stop him? No, I don't, I don't think that would be quite, you can make the argument. Now, I know some people would try, but I would have a hard time making that argument. Can I persuade him not to? Can I even call the police? I could do that. On the other hand, I might be more like the um, priest, the famous priest from Les Miserables, you know, Victor Hugo's great novel, who when the, the uh, person steals his fine silver and his gold and he gets caught and the gendarmes bring him back and his response is, oh, my friend, you forgot to take the silver as well. Here you go. You left the best stuff here. Here, have this as well. So he's living out exactly what Jesus said, which is you give to one who takes from you, and you turn the other cheek. And we say, well, that's ridiculous. But no, that's, that's the radical reality of what Christ calls us to do. And it, it's kind of an exciting way of looking at it, and also a very, frankly, un-American way of looking at it. <laughs> it is. I, I, I would have a very difficult time if I came face-to-face -face with an intruder in my house saying, go ahead, take what you want. You need it more than me. Yeah. Yeah. And... <laughs> You're saying that Jesus would, this is what gospel preaches. I, I, read Genesis, I read Matthew 5 that way. And I think Luther read Matthew 5 that way. And then the only exception then is, but wait a minute, we also have responsibilities living in the left realm. So should I stop the burglar in my house because he's likely to go to my neighbor the next night? Yeah, I can make that case, and that would be reasonable. And then, therefore, okay, I'm going to stop him from getting my stuff. But see, the true Christian motive, Luther would argue, is the service to the neighbor, not protection of self. And I think he's right about that. I think that fits very well with exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, but then also brings it into line with the reality that we live in this world, caring for the neighbor in this world. And so that's the tension that is always directing us. So I don't defend my own rights or defend myself, but I absolutely defend my neighbor and stand up for him all that I can. I can see that, and I also can see that that is almost a dangerous concept, being that, say, I'm confronted with that situation, and yeah. I do use deadly force against a burglar, yeah. saying to myself, well, gee, he's probably committed many or other crimes and will do some more in the future. Therefore, I'm serving my neighbor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, see, that's, that's where the, the, who are you to judge this? Is that really appropriate? And that's why I think the Christian should always take the path of least least aggressive, not using deadly force, what else can I do? What else is appropriate? And it, it, it's, 
I guess when you, when you think about it kind of crassly, can you see? So Jesus's house is getting broken into in Nazareth. What's his response? Is he going to get up and club the guy? Or is he going to say, what do you need? And how can I help you? What What would we expect from our Lord? And when you think of it that way, the idea of you know, Jesus using deadly force against an intruder is kind of an absurdity. And I think that's how we should see it, kind of an absurdity. Well, I've seen a, uh, there's a cartoon making the rounds uh, that you may have seen showing uh, Jesus driving the money changers from the temple. And the uh, caption under it goes something like, what would Jesus do? Well, turning over tables and chasing people with whips is one option. Right. And and that's in in the service of the gospel itself, which is always the critical thing. So Jesus is doing what needs to be done in the service of the gospel, not in service of his own needs or somebody is taking his, his rights or somebody's you know, imposing their will on him. That's not the point. His point is, you guys are missing what God is actually doing here. We need to bring the reality of grace back to the front. Let's get rid of this stuff that's cluttering it up. Now, I'm afraid I don't have the copy of the Bible in front of me, but didn't he actually use the language saying something like, you've turned my house or my father's house into a den of thieves? Absolutely. Uh, my house, my, this, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, and you went into a den of thieves. Exactly right. Yes. But yep. again, he used the word house. As oh, in, yeah, again, yeah. in English, you know, that, that means dwelling place. Oh, maybe, okay. maybe in Aramaic it means something else. No, no, I think the home is home. The idea is this is, this is the Father's dwelling place. This is where people come to receive God's grace. And that kind of, I would make the argument that the context is pretty clear here. The God's, the Father's house, God's house is supposed to be a place where people come to receive God's gifts and to participate in the life of faith there together. And instead it's become a, an area for, um, business and economy and, and transactions, and Jesus is not happy about that, which probably has something else to say to us in our conduct of our life in the church together today, but that's probably another topic for another time. <laughs> well, could we make the argument that our personal homes are like that as well? I'm thinking specifically that that's a place where I can go, I can appreciate the gifts that God has given me in terms of my family and, and, and my surroundings, and uh, yeah, I, I thank God every day for those, for the, for what I have, for what's been given sure. to me. Uh, would that, I, I, I can consider my home, my marriage, my family, I consider it a form of worship. Is that correct or am I being heretical? No, no, I think it's, it's, it's a sense of worship in the sense that you're living the reality you have in the, in the temporal realm or in this kind of created world around us. God's, God has created this world. He's put us in it to enjoy it to serve it, to accomplish his purposes in it. And so when you're living rightly in that world, sure, you're honoring God, and that is, a, in a sense, a very real form of worship. I would agree with that. Um, but to make the case that you, therefore, should do, defend it from intruders, that gets a little harder, because, again, this, this intruder is another child of God, created by God. He's intent on doing evil, right, but he's still, so God is put there, and you have the warrant from God to take his life, or even to harm him. And I would say, I don't see that. I don't. I have a hard time recognizing where that would fit with Jesus' teaching about what it means to follow him in the idea of self-sacrificing and giving of ourselves. And this can get, frankly, very inconvenient and very uncomfortable, but I do think it's part of the challenge of sorting out where does following Christ stop and defending myself start? Is there really, are those really at odds with each other? Yeah. It's an interesting point. There was a book published about two or three years ago by a uh, Lutheran pastor who had uh, pastored, uh, who was the uh, counselor to Nazi war criminals, I believe specifically to Keitel and Yodel. Uh, 
And that was an intriguing read about how these, you know, these these men who who supported and and helped to launch one of the most horrific regimes in the history of mankind tried to right. bring them to the grace of God. Right. Yeah, precisely, which is what we always do. This is what Christians are called to do. And this is our number one task. We, we live our vocation toward the neighbor, live out of ourselves for the sake of the neighbor, and then try to bring our neighbor rightly related to God as well. This, these are our, our kind of twofold tasks. Do well what God has given us to do in the world, and bring the world to know God's love and God's grace. That's mm. exactly right. Well, we got a lot more to talk about. I've got a lot, oh, yeah. a lot more questions, believe me. But unfortunately, we do have to take a break here at the bottom of the hour, and we'll be right back after this. Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, has written, The meaning of life is found in the source of life. What does he mean by that? We'll find out Friday on Issues Etc. when we talk with him about the good life. We'll review the movie A Wrinkle in Time with Pastor Ted Geese. And we'll talk media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly. Issues Etc. Live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Life moves pretty fast. One way or the other, it's pretty much guaranteed to pass you by. Missing out on a spelling bee or a softball game is bad enough. But what happens when you and your family miss out on God's word? That's why we're here, reminding you every step of the way that the Word of God is not about what you do, but about what Jesus has done for you. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Worldwide KFUO. There is a long and noble tradition in the Christian church that is somewhat counterintuitive. It says that confession can be put to music and sung. We'll explore that tradition on the next Sing for Joy. I hope you'll join us. Sundays at noon on KFUO, the messenger of good news. Life moves pretty fast. One way or the other, it's pretty much guaranteed to pass you by. Missing out on a spelling bee or a softball game is bad enough, but what happens when you and your family miss out on God's word? That's why we're here, reminding you every step of the way that the Word of God is not about what you do, but about what Jesus has done for you. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Worldwide KFUO. Pop art and the Bible, created by a woman wearing a habit? Sister Corita Kent's silkscreen pop art has been compared to Andy Warhol's famous works. And in 2015, a retrospective of her works were curated for a showing at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. Corita Kent was head of the art department at Immaculate Heart College in Los Angeles in the early 60s. Her earliest silkscreen banners and posters featured at civil rights rallies as well as making the covers of national magazines. Her trademark look was to take popular advertising logos, cleverly juxtaposing them with biblical references. But her most famous pop art graphic was the Love Art, created in 1985 for the U.S. Postal Service. Over 700 million love stamps were sold in that year before she died. Engage with the Bible, its impact and influence on everyday events. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. 
Welcome back to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. Uh, I'm Kev Allen. I'm the program host, and my guest today is Dr. Joel Bierman, who is a professor at Concordia Lutheran Seminary in St. Louis, and we are talking about ethics. Coming up, you can call us right now if you have your questions in your in the St. Louis area. You can call us at area code three one four eight two one zero eight fifty or toll free anywhere in North America at one eight hundred seven three zero twenty seven twenty seven. Okay, let's jump back into it. <laughs> Dr. Bierman. Yes. Here's a question, uh, a number of different questions. This, this is one. I got in, I'm relatively active on social media, and uh, I have uh, been discussing the issues of abortion with people. And uh, as is our theology dictates, and as I believe, abortion is murder. And a person who supports uh, the abortion's point of view said, well, if you regard it as abortion, uh, abortion as murder, why don't you physically try to stop it? Mm-hmm. How do I answer that? Well, I think the way to answer that is to say that we recognize, this goes back to this idea of the vocation or the responsibility that I have, that it's not my office to enforce God's law. I'm not, I'm not called to do that. What I'm called to do is to defend my neighbor. Now, you could say I'm defending my neighbor by making sure the abortionist doesn't go in there and kill this child in utero. But it gets a little more complicated because you have the mother of the child who's supposed to be defending the child who's not. And so then for you to intervene, it gets complicated because of that level. And then it also gets complicated because you're taking justice in your own hands, which is not appropriate, when the government's supposed to be doing it. Now, you can say, well, the government's not, and so I've got to step in where the government won't. No, that would be a violent revolution sort of a thing, and you don't usurp the government's authority. You try to change the government's authority. You try to insist, help them see it the right way, try to help the government change their mind so their law is made just, but it's not your task to uphold what the government's not doing. That's That would be the inappropriate part of this. If you felt like this, there's no one else to intervene, then you have a sense of, okay, so I'm, I'm in a position by God to step in and do something. But the problem here is there are all kinds of other people who are able to intervene and who should be doing something that you could prevail upon to do something, and that's why this becomes uh, a wrong action. Why not civil disobedience then justified? That's not violent, but it is rejecting governmental authority. Right. And there's a, a big difference between revolution and civil disobedience. Uh, I think I find a lot of people have a hard time sorting out that difference. They kind of equate them. But civil disobedience means the government has demanded me to do something or forbidden me to do something which God tells me I should do or shouldn't do, as the case may be. So therefore, according to Acts 5.29, I must obey God, not men. So I will do what God wants me to do, and I will not obey the law. However, I'm not going to work actively to overthrow the government. I'm not going to try to um, rebel against the government. I'm simply going to try to do what God calls me to do in spite of what the government might be doing. That's that's the sense of it. So I will be disobedient to the rule, but I'm not going to bring up, raise violent arms, and I'm not going to try to overthrow the government. That would be the difference. Although you can certainly work to change the laws of that. that... Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as, as an American, this is something even more pressing on us, because see, now, when Luther was writing a lot of this stuff, he was living in the kind of the last days of the feudal society, where you had a government who was very much basically the tyrant or the prince whose word is law, and that's it. And that, you just did what you were told. 
we live in a democratic republic. In a sense, we're part of the government, so we have an even heavier burden to be involved helping the government sort things out, do things the right way, how we vote, how we influence, how we participate. This is our responsibility to try to shape the government in the ways that are according to God's law. So we should be doing this. And that's where he started getting the idea that instead of Lutherans becoming some of the most inactive in their, in their civil realm, we should be some of the most active in the civil realm, because we understand our responsibility toward the civil realm to help the civil realm be just and obedient. Well, that brings up a really interesting point. You know, as, you, as you just brought up, you know, Luther, Luther lived in the times of, uh, as you said, it was a tyrant. It was in the, uh, the late uh, feudal system. He had no concept of the idea of a constitutional republic. And the people right. in his world were either the rulers or the ruled. There was no idea of, of the people having any power of themselves. Where here we are exactly. in the 21st century, and really going back to the revolution, where we came up with the concept of, no, the people are the government. Mm-hmm. I wonder how he would have reacted to that. Yeah, I think he would have been very suspicious of it. Frankly, <laughs> because, <laughs> I, I, just, I just do. Uh, he, he talks quite a bit about don't trust the mob. The mob isn't going to be a good leader. He'd read enough classic literature, Plato and Aristotle, to be, I think, very suspicious of democracies. Remember that Plato did not like democracies, Was felt that democracies were a very poor form of government, because they'll give you mediocre leaders. And that was Plato's concern. And I think Luther would have shared some of that. Uh, so I think he would have been very suspicious of the whole idea. But from our standpoint, we could say, a government's a government's a government. You know, God can use a monarchy, he can use an oligarchy, he can use a dictator, he can use a democracy. You can rule in any way that he chooses to set that up. And this also then puts a little different spin on it, because I wouldn't argue there's one inherently better form of government that's more Christian or more godly than another. It's just different ways of ruling things. So democracy has its its problems, frankly, but so do with all the others. So there's nothing that's ideal, but we should be a little, I think, wary of sometimes being so quick to endorse democracy as the best mm. Christian way of doing things. Well, that was going to be my next question right there. As you pointed out, you know, God institutes the governments, and he works through bad leaders just as much as he does good. And we being humans have a bad habit of judging things by what we see. Yeah, sure, you know, the Constitutional Republic works perfectly fine for us. Well, not perfectly, but it works for us. <laughs> That's not to say it's going to work in another country, in another culture that has that has a completely different tradition and worldview. And yep. we we as Americans tend to be almost messianic in our desire to spread democracy. That's right. That's a good word for it. Yeah, I agree with that. And we have there's, there's some history there where we have conflated, frankly, the work of the church with the work of the of the world, with the work of the government. And this is pretty common among especially more conservative Christians in America of thinking that America is God's religion, God's country, that America is a Christian nation, and so therefore when we're advancing God's purposes, it means we're advancing America's purposes, and that democracy and Christianity go hand in hand. When they, they really don't. The, the reality is, is much more complicated, and that may be so encouraging. The, the, one of the big problems with democracy, frankly, is that you have the people are the final authority. And like it or not, that is what a democracy means. The people are the final authority. And our country is founded on that. If you look at the Constitution of the United States and you say, what's the source of authority in the, in the United States? And it's very clear, it's the people. 
the people are the source of authority. That means, according to the U.S. Constitution, that right and wrong is determined by the people. That's how it works. The people establish the legislature and the courts, and everything is determined by what the people think. So like it or not, in America, if 51% of the people think something is right, and in America, that's what's right. That's how it works. There is no natural law foundation in the Constitution. It's not there. It's an interesting point. Um, then, And also, I, I've gotten in some, on the bad side of some uh, discussions with my Christian friends, where I maintain that the U.S. is not a Christian country. It's a Christian I people. Yeah. The government is not. The government is secular. I think the That's people right. are overwhelmingly Christian, but that is not the government. That's correct. That's exactly right. And neither should it be. So this is the surprise that if you're going to be consistent with, I would argue, scriptural, and of course then a Lutheran expression of this, of that teaching, then we should not be pushing for a Christian America, but we should be looking for a America filled with Christian people who know God's grace, and an America that has a government that is just and trying to uphold God's will for his creation, but it's not a a government that's preaching the gospel or proclaiming Christ. That's the church's job, and we we should want an America that is just, that doesn't kill babies, that doesn't redefine marriage in ways that harm families, that doesn't do things that chip away at God's truth. That's the kind of America we should be working for, but that's different than a Christian America founded on Christian principles, per se. Well, I think the Christian principles have certainly played a role, but then again, so yeah. did Western non-Christian traditions. I mean, the, the whole concept of democracy is not a Christian tradition. That's right, and neither is the Enlightenment, which had a huge influence on Locke and Rousseau and Jefferson, and those are the ideas that you see all over the Federalist Papers, frankly. And one thing that we uh, we did early on, I mean, we lucked out a number of times in our history. Sometimes it makes you think we really are the ones chosen by God. Uh, not only did we win the revolution against all odds, uh, <clears throat> we came out of it with the Articles of Confederation, which turned out not to be workable. So uh, the Constitution came up, and again, you know, that could have gone anyway. And yeah. what, what it did, though, was it established a body of law that balanced against the mob, if you will. You pointed out earlier that, well, 51% says this, that that's the law. Well, that's not quite right. 51% of the people may say, well, you don't have the right to free speech. Well, the Constitution says otherwise. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, the Constitution, the thing that we have come up with as being the guiding principle, sure, yeah. But you see, even that's a product of the people relinquishing some of their rights for the sake of the common good. This is the whole idea of the, the social contract theory, which is at work in, in Rousseau, which is really kind of fundamental to the American experiment. Well, let's explore that a little bit further. How does the social contract work with Lutheranism? I, I don't think it works real well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Boy, did it open up to that one. <laughs> well, no, it's just, it's, just the, it's just the whole point. Because, see, the idea that the social contract theory and Rousseau is premised on the idea of the inherent rights of the individual. So for Enlightenment thinking, the starting point is always the individual, the person, me. And so I'm a self-sustaining person with all these inherent rights. Now, for the sake of getting along with my neighbor, I will relinquish some of those rights so that we can get along together. I won't hurt him. He won't hurt me. All right. So I give up my, some of my rights for that social contract. Well, see, the starting point's backwards. And the starting point for a Lutheran Christian confession is not the sacred individual, but God the creator who creates me, puts me in the world and says, do this my way. Okay. So now we're in a receptive mo- mo- mode, a mode of 
contingency and dependence upon God, not this self-sufficient, self-sustaining individual, which is the, the myth of the, of the Enlightenment man, which is foundational to the American experiment. Instead, we would operate with, I am a creature dependent upon God. He's established this place for me to live and these ways to live. I'm going to function according to his purposes, and it gives you a, a different way of looking at it altogether. I have heard it argued that the Enlightenment was not beneficial to Christianity. Was not what? Was not beneficial to Christianity. I would agree with that 100%. Absolutely. I would say the Enlightenment was basically antithetical to Christianity. That's quite right. Could you explain that? Sure. The The whole premise of Christianity is God is the, is the center. He's the beginning. He's the creator. He's the one who establishes. We live in relation to him. So everything centers around him. The, the basic premise of the Enlightenment, which most people would date with probably Rene Descartes and his meditations and the whole idea of cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Descartes' first move is he's wanting to be certain of something. The one thing he's sure of is himself. And so the whole Enlightenment project is man can become the center of the universe, will figure out things as the world revolves around us. So God is displaced to being one more thing in the world instead of being the center and the beginning point. The Enlightenment makes man the beginning point, and everything else just goes from there. And so what's your starting point? Is it God is the center and we are the recipients, or is it man is the center who's making sense of his world and trying to figure out what to do with God and where he fits? So the early Enlightenment thinkers like Descartes and then some of the early ones who followed after him, and even up through the 18th century, was like Locke and Jefferson, still have God. He's got some work to do, but he is not central. Then you get another century down the line, and once Darwin's come up with this theory of evolution, you need God less and less, and so God just keeps on getting marginalized more and more. That's what the Enlightenment gives you, until finally you get to the pinnacle, which would be Nietzsche himself, who's the ultimate Enlightenment thinker, saying, if man's the center and God's dead, then let's just act like it. And all you have left is the ubermensch who's going to be the overman who's going to have the will to power to do what he wants to do. And you look around the world today and say, I think we've, we're there. And so that's what the Enlightenment gives you. And it's opposed to Christian truth at almost every step. It's a branch of that existentialism, the idea being that my being and my senses, what I can see, defines reality. Sure. It's it's. Yeah, this is, this is exactly what Nietzsche does. You see, there's nothing more than what I see and what I decide. That's what's real. And there's nothing more real than my, my perception of it. So it's just a matter of who's going to have the guts to assert his, his reality and impose it on other people. That's very much what you get. And now even modern science says there's a lot going on that our senses can't detect that is real. Everything Correct. from <laughs> atoms, uh, radiation, radio waves, what we're doing right now. Yeah. And... I, I've I've got into a uh, discussion not too long ago with a uh, with a scientist, a psychologist who is a Christian, and uh, the discussion went into the fact that more and more science is actually validating religion. Well, that's always the case, I would argue, and I think this is one of the things we should keep in mind as Christians that we we certainly don't need to be afraid of science or afraid of empirical exploration of the world around us. That's basically what science is trying to do. I would contend that this is, this is God's creation, it's God's world, we will expect God's truth to, to line up and cohere. And when it doesn't, we just have to be patient and see how it all plays out. We shouldn't jump to conclusions and assume that somehow science is opposed to God. It's not. And science isn't inherently opposed to religion. It's not. The Science, as it's working its way through things, is going to keep on discovering things and unpacking things. 
and we're going to find out the, the coherence between God's truth in both realms, right and left. And as a Christian, we will take one of God's truths, or any of God's truths, or any of these factors that are around us, and just, I think, from a normal curiosity would be, gee, how did he do this? And science can help to explain that. Uh, Of course, then there's the danger of the tree of knowledge, you know? Well, yeah, this is is the whole point about the the Christian is contingent and dependent and is obedient to his Lord, so he lets God lead him. So it was the idea of thinking God's thoughts after him. That's kind of a cool way of thinking about this, and that was, I believe, um, actually Kepler who said this. So and this was a great physicist who was also a Lutheran. So what the scientist does is thinking God's thoughts after him. God has conceived this, God has arranged this, and the man has to kind of follow along behind and try to sort these things out. And as we discover these truths about his world, we're honoring him and learning more about him, and it's, it's a good thing. Uh, it's the other way that's even more ancient. The phrase was faith-seeking understanding. And so we have faith. We trust God and His Word. We trust His promises. We trust that He's the good giver. And then we seek to understand more and more of the world that He's given us. And that's not a bad thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with, with those kinds of pursuits. I remember uh, back in my college days, I, I shared an apartment with three other guys. And uh, we used to go out on the balcony around sunset and watch the uh, sun going down behind the lake. And one of the guys was what, at the time, we used to call a Jesus freak. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I, I, remember, I remember we were. It was a particularly good sunset, and I remember John. It was the it was the Jesus freak turning to us and saying, "Isn't it wonderful that God gives us this free show every night, every afternoon, and it's always different and it's always free?" And I remember sort of chuckling to myself at the time. But you know, the more I think about it, he was right. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, that's that's right, and it's the attitude that you, you learn to see things as these gifts from God, and it gives you a, a greater appreciation for things. This this is an old kind of interface here. So who's more accurate, the the poet who talks about God giving you this free show every night, or the scientist who says, now this is just the world spinning on its axis, this is just dust particles in the air, who's really got the better picture of what's going on around you? So sometimes the poet does. Yeah, and then, yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, so what if it's dust particles in the air? That's how God arranged it. That's exactly right. Yep. <laughs> and it's it's amazing. You know, the older I get, the less I know. <laughs> well, there's truth to that. And that's the yeah. humility that I think should always accompany everything we're doing as human beings, whether it's in the hard sciences or in theology, whatever it is. Uh, we don't know nearly as much as we think we do, and we're always living dependent uh, creatures trying to honor our Lord and Creator in ways that are appropriate. And that means in our service in the left-hand realm, in our vocations, and in our pursuit of His truth in the world. This is always what we're doing. It's always kind of hesitant and always very aware of our limitations and with a huge dose of humility, then. That should sort of come to everything we do. Well, maybe that's part of the part of the growing process. I mean, I look at... Uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the example of the, uh, of the kids who walked out of school yesterday in protest uh-huh. of, uh, of the current gun laws. Uh, they are so convinced of the rightness of their position. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it is a, it is a factor of youth or the, the fact that they, they can't look beyond their own feeling. Correct. Um, well, go ahead. They've been trained to do that. They've been trained to think, to think, to trust their feelings, and that's 
pretty much how our contemporary world works is each individual is a sovereign uh, the arbiter of truth, and so they're told to trust their feelings and trust what they think is right, and that's exactly the end of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's quite right. Well, the, the other part that really struck me... Um, <laughs> Going back to my my misspent youth as a liberal arts major, <laughs> actually uh-huh. actually reading such things as uh, as Thoreau and Gandhi, uh, where the actual proponents and uh, of civil disobedience, as we talked about earlier, said that civil disobedience without punishment is worthless. Right. You have to be punished by the unjust laws to highlight the injustice of it. And I look at these kids who are walking out now, but they are sanctioned by their school districts. They don't face any penalty for speaking yeah. their for, for speaking their belief. Yeah, it's pretty hard to um, spin it as civil disobedience when you've got the authorities encouraging it. <laughs> 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 and, and you know, I, I would take it a lot more seriously what they have to say, and have the, a lot more respect for them if they were doing it on their own time, or if they were willing to accept such things as detention and and even suspension for what yeah. they believe. Right. Right. And uh, how do we get that message across? I know I think Lutheranism uh, also d- talks about that. We we mentioned just uh, the, a few minutes ago about where there is the point where. The Christian has to say, "I cannot do what the state mandates," right? And so we yeah. don't do it. But we understand that we have to accept the punishment that will be meted to us by the left hand kingdom. No, this is exactly right. That this is just respect the whole right thing again. So if I, as a Christian, am trying to follow God faithfully and do what God gives me to do, and so then the state mandates some kind of law that violates God's purposes, what do I do? I obey God. Well, then the state comes in and punishes me. Yeah, they do that. I expected it. I'm not surprised by that. I don't make any special pleading. I don't say, but I'm a nice guy. You shouldn't be doing this to me. The state says, no, you violated the rules. This is the punishment. Fair enough. That's the way it works. And so in the Church, instead of trying to figure out how to avoid punishment for our following God, we should be simply following God and let the state do what the state does. Let the state imprison us. Okay. We just deal with that. We, We keep pressing forward in our faithfulness, which is exactly the, exact, the picture you get of the early church. The early church obeyed God, not man, and they paid the price for that. But they didn't stop obeying God, and they didn't expect the state to you know, cut them slack because they were really nice people after all. They fully expected to pay the price for their civil disobedience. That's what civil disobedience means. Well, I think the other thing, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the other thing we're facing is uh, the, there's been a uh, decline in the concept of right or wrong, where it's a, it's a subjective concept rather than mm-hmm. there being objective truths. Oh, sure. And that, then this, this is grounded also in the, the loss of God as the center. So that's back to the Enlightenment thing. So the Enlightenment shifts the center from being God, which is a authoritative, thus saith the Lord, natural law sort of a thing. It's just built in to being what we make of it and what we think of it. So then right and wrong definitely get shaded, and you start losing track of what is the truth, and it becomes very much just what we feel. Uh, Alistair McIntyre labeled that as emotivism. So what's right is what makes me feel right, and what's bad is what makes me feel bad. And so if I don't like something because it makes me feel uncomfortable, that's a bad thing. And if it makes me feel good, that's a good thing. That's essentially the basis we have for right and wrong in our culture today. That's about the extent of it. To try to argue anything more fundamental than that, it gets really complicated really quickly because you have to invoke God or some kind of natural law, and nobody wants to do that anymore. And yet, 
to me, it, it, it's just as plain as, as, as the nose in my face. It's sure. <laughs> yeah, it's right there. I just felt it. Uh, we, where there are some things that we simply do not negotiate. We do know this is right. This is wrong. And, and yeah. there have to be some universals. Murder. Of course, then well, we no. get then we get into the definition of what's murder, and one people will say, "Well, yeah, you kill in war, that's murder." Other people will say, "Yeah, well, abortion is murder." Well, where do we go? Well, the, the the reality is there is a natural law that God has built into the world. It's at work. It's there, and those are non negotiables, and they are universal, and they are written in every human heart. The, the problem is a society and an individual can blunt that and redefine it and nuance it so it becomes less clear and even less um, uh, authoritative in the life of a person. That can happen. But the law is still there. And part of what we do as Christians, then, is we try to resurface that law and help people to get in touch with what they're actually called to do and what it really means to follow God and their responsibilities. Because we can be confident that it, that natural law is there, and people are more aware of it than what they might want to admit. And we try to bring that out and try to highlight that again. That's one of our tasks in the left-hand realm. That's what we do. Well, we recognize that God is in our heart from birth, even prior to that. As they say, you know, God loved us even in the mother's womb. And I have been taught, both by my parents and by the church in my early days, was that the conscience is not a social concept or construct. Mm -hmm. It truly is the voice of God through the Holy Spirit. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I agree. <laughs> and and God God is convicting us with that, or you know, excusing us. But yet, we we know from experience also that people can cover up that voice, twist it, hide it, conceal it, so that they don't even hear it anymore. That can happen. Yeah, I remember my mother telling me that. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I questioning that. Well, gee, mom, you know, I mean. Do I really have to do it? That I, I can ignore it. Well, yeah, you can't ignore it, but there's a huge price to pay. That's right. And the price being that that voice may not always be there for you. That's right. That's right. And yeah, that's a scary, scary concept. Yeah, it should be for all of us, yeah. Well, Pastor, we're coming up into the final three minutes of the program. So do you do you want to have, have a... a, a, a some kind of a wrap-up of what we've been talking about, of what the ethics and the morality are. Is there a difference between ethics and morality? Uh, well, yeah, there are so many questions. Sure. Well, there are lots of questions. We're, we're dealing with lots of topics here all over the place, which is fine. It's fun. But um, the ethics and morality are basically just interested in the same thing as behavior. Ethics has a Greek root. Morality has a Latin root. And they're, and they're, and they're very verbiage. And they both want the same thing, which is how are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to behave? What kind of people are we supposed to be? That's what they're interested in. And for a Christian, those answers are very clear. We should follow Christ. We should obey God's will. We should obey what He's revealed to us. That's our Christian life. And we should be pursuing that with zeal. That's not in negating the gift that we have in God through Christ and all the forgiveness of sins. That's true, but then we have responsibilities in this world. So in this world, we go out and we do what God calls us to do. We follow Christ, we live faithfully, we protect our neighbor, we serve our neighbor. That's what we're called to do, and that's where our ethics get lived out. And we are called, uh, very explicitly in the Bible, Jesus has called us to spread the word, to, to, yes. live, to, to live according to what he has taught us. Uh, and that's, you know, that's one of the things that we do here at KFU. Oh, you know, we call ourselves a broadcast ministry, which we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you are doing also through the, uh, through the seminary. And, uh, well, we try. 
<laughs> I have to say, I, ha I have a huge respect for you people who have gone through the seminar, and even more for you who teach it. Um, since I've been working here at the IC, I, I've been in radio for most of my career, uh, yeah. but only working here with, directly for the Lutheran Church for about five years. And I have just been blown away at the level of intelligence and education I run into here from the pastors. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> it really is. I mean, they, I, I, I was talking to one today. I said, you know, uh, <laughs> he came with a classic answer. I said, you know, the older I get, the more I believe, but the less I understand. And he said to me, well, that's because you're getting smart. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's what we're talking about, I guess. Pastor, I want to thank you so much for joining the program today. You've My really pleasure. enlightened it. And uh, I also want to give a special thanks right now to the Reverend Pastor Emeritus Fritz Bowie for letting us use his recording of All Glory, Laud, and Honor as the theme song for Let's Talk the Pastor is In. His books are available on Amazon.com. I'm your host, Kip Allen, wishing you God's blessing. listening to The Pastor is In, a weekly chance to chat with the pastor. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting The Pastor is In on Worldwide KFUO.